Hey, everybody, and welcome to season two of the All About Everest podcast. And I'm your host, Pauline Reynolds Nuttall. On this podcast, you can get anything and everything about Mount Everest, including interviews, book recommendations, tips, updates, and a whole lot more. So welcome to the spring 2023 Everest climbing season. And here we go. Hey there, everybody, and welcome to season two, episode five of the All About Everest podcast. I'm really excited to share my interview that I had with Adriana Brownlee. She is a climber from the UK, and she is just an amazing human being. She inspires so many young people to get out there into the mountains. She's got new adventures going on, and she just turned 22 last month in January. Her goal right now is to be the youngest person to summit all of the 14 8,000ers in the shortest amount of time, and she's well on her way. She has 10 out of the 14 under her belt, and her story is very expiring especially to younger people like my teenagers. So I'm really excited to share this interview with you guys. But before I get to the interview, there's just a couple Everest updates that I want to share with you. The first update doesn't really pertain to Mount Everest, but last week I interviewed Jason Black and he and his team successfully summited Mount Kilimanjaro this week. So congratulations to Jason and all of his team for reaching the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro. The next update does have to do with Mount Everest. A couple episodes ago, I discussed some of the documentaries that were coming out in 2023. And there is now a release date for the documentary Finding Michael. It will be released on March 3rd on Disney Plus in the UK and Europe. There doesn't seem to be a release date yet for the U.S., so I'm really sad, and I kind of want to, like, get a ticket and fly all the way to the other side of the world just so I can watch it. So hopefully I can find a way to watch that documentary before it's released here in the U.S. I'll see what I can do. But if you haven't heard about it, uh. Spencer Matthews, he lost his brother Michael on Everest in 1999, and he and Nimsday essentially went on an expedition this year, hopefully to find his brother's body and bring it back. Bear Grylls is an executive producer on the case, or on the documentary, and there is a rumor that sometime in the last several years... Bear Girls went on a secret mission to Mount Everest to try to find Michael's body. You might know Spencer Matthews. He is a TV personality in the UK. So if you're in the UK and you watch the documentary or in Europe, let me know what you think. Send us a message. Leave a comment on Spotify and let me know if it's good. 
I'm not sure yet who's going to be on the podcast next week. I do have three amazing humans that I will be interviewing, but life happens. And this is also the spring training season because everyone is getting ready for all of these amazing adventures. So it's either going to be a young female American athlete or it's going to be a photographer or it's going to be an amazing mountaineer that has this huge story of overcoming all of these odds to be able to climb Mount Everest this year. And we will be following him. So I don't want to commit to who it's going to be next week as a guest on the podcast. So stay tuned. For all of our listeners, I have an awesome offer for you guys. Just because you listen, you can get 10% off a Nomadic Box subscription if you use the code EVEREST. I love my Nomadic Box subscription. It's for anyone who loves the great outdoors. My family and I, we camp over 45 nights a year, including backpacking, car camping, camper camping, and tents. So I'm always looking for new stuff and we go through things quite frequently because we are a family of five plus one if you count my son-in-law. I have discovered some of the best brands through the Nomadic Box and it's really worth the money. So check it out. And again, for 10% off, use the code EVEREST at checkout. I was so excited to interview Adriana. She is just a rock star and a badass. She just turned 22 last month. So late happy birthday, Adriana. And she's just out there taking names, kicking ass and climbing huge mountains. She is an English mountaineer, certified paragliding pilot and an adventure athlete. And she currently holds a Guinness World Record as the youngest woman to climb K2. She's currently working on another record. And we talk about that during her interview. What a joy to interview her. And I hope that you guys enjoy the interview as much as I did. Hey, Adriana. Thank you so much for joining us for the All About Everest podcast. Everybody, I have Adriana Brownlee from Great Britain today. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Busy, busy at home, but um, yeah, all good. Happy, happy. (laughs) So tell us how you got into mountaineering. Um, So, well, it all began when I was around seven years old um, and my father, he he always kind of had a dream in the back of his mind to climb Everest, to climb the big mountains. So he did Aconcagua when I was seven. And when he did this, I thought he was like a God. Uh, and I was, I'd looked up to him so much and I was so inspired. And I remember going to school, primary school and telling my friends like, wow, my dad just climbed Aconcagua. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, what is this? Um, unless it's a Barbie doll or a new baby, they don't really care. Um, but I was just fascinated. So um, in primary school, they asked us to write uh, what we want to do when we're older. Um, and I wrote down, I want to climb Everest and I want to inspire other people to do the same. 
I don't know if that meant climb Everest or to follow your dreams, um, but I, I can't remember when I was eight. Um, and then at nine years old, I did the Three Peaks Challenge, uh, which is the highest mountain in England, Scotland and Wales in under 24 hours. Um, got into the local newspaper, felt like a hero. Um, and I knew this was my calling um, to do mountaineering and any sort of endurance events, really, because I, I felt like I had the, the tenacity. I the, the mind power and uh, I got this one from my father really um, so that's how it kind of all happened and then in terms of the big mountains so the 14 8000ers um, that happened a little bit later on uh, when I was 20 um, and I got the spark and the inspiration actually from Nimstai who's a mountaineer as well um, and he's the one that pushed me into doing that specific project and what was your first 8,000er that you climbed? So the first one was Everest, actually, um, which I think most people would think like, oh, okay, like biggest first. Um, but personally, I thought because it's so, so much more commercialized than the others, it was probably one of the easier ones, to be honest. And how did you fund your Everest trip? <laughs> so my <laughs> before Everest so my, my obviously my dream was always Everest since I was eight and my parents knew this and they were fully aware um and I'm very lucky to come from quite a good family so I have a lot of support behind me and they said from the beginning if you're going to climb Everest then we're going to support you with that financially um and so that was kind of my boost um, and then from then on after, they said, you fund yourself because <laughs> we need money for retirement, obviously. Um, and if you're <laughs> the fortune, you have to work your butt off uh, to get there. And that's what I've done <laughs> pretty much because I knew this was my dream. Um, and after quitting university, this felt like, you know, I have to I have to do well in this or else I'm stuck. <laughs> so. So England doesn't really have huge mountains. How did you first train for Everest? Um, well, I mean, lots of people say you have to train in the mountains to climb the mountains, but I don't believe that at all. Um, so my training was mostly during COVID, actually, um, because COVID started a year before I'd um, booked my Everest expedition. Um, so my training consisted of running five to 10 Ks four times a week, running up and down the staircases in my apartment. So it's eight floors. I put on a 15 kilo backpack and one of the like oxygen suppressing masks just to get a feel for labored breathing. Um, and that was, that was my routine. And then I'd come back to the house and do a, a strength workout. Um, and I think just the monotony of running up and down my stairs for two hours on end um, mentally prepared me for how boring it can be on the high mountains as well. Cause it's just one foot in front of the other really. And when you first got to Everest Base Camp, what was your first thought? Um, I guess that my first thought was I've made it, you know, to my goal, uh, working so hard for so many years. It's like it was a pinch yourself moment. Um, I think the bigger moment, though, was when I was in Namche and you get the first view of Everest um, just above the hill. And that was that was huge. Um, it was so overwhelming to think that I was potentially going to be on the top of that mountain um, in a month or so. Um, so yeah, 
getting to base camp, it already kind of sunk in a little bit, but it was still cool to you know, walk into your tent, see the Kumbu Icefall, which is, you know, it's got so much history and the danger of it. It's, it's eerie, right? Um, so yeah, it was, it was a cool experience to get to base camp. And I was going with quite a nice company as, you know, on the earring on the side of luxury um so we had a nice base camp set up it was all you know ready for us so yeah it was a good experience going to base camp how many times did you cross the kumbu ice fell um i've probably crossed it oh god i'd say eight times maybe in total um because obviously i did everest and we did all the rotations for that and then I also climbed Lotsi uh, this year. Um, and there was, that was just one time up and one time down. Um, so I've been in it a few times. I got my fair share of the ice floor and I don't want to go back in it. <laughs> Let's just say that. How, sc how scary was it? Because we all know that that is essentially the most dangerous part, if you will. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I always tell people to imagine like a bowl of popcorn with flour sprinkled on the top of snow and you're a tiny ant and your job is to get from one side of the bowl to the other side of the bowl that is what the ice was like plus it's moving under your feet at 1.2 meters per day so <laughs> I mean the sounds you hear under your feet are just you can't even describe them it's like this grumbling noise and you just know something is moving um, and anything can happen at any moment and in the night because you can't see as much it's not so bad you just put your head down and get on with it but when you're coming back down especially in the daytime that's when you see like oh I just walked through this um like this is not somewhere where humans should be um but yeah it's definitely eerie and I remember one time after our Everest summit because our summit was so late we had to come back in the daytime and I just like I was walking across and it was it was a piece of ice maybe less than a meter wide um with sheer drop either side and this huge grumble came underneath, like almost like an earthquake, a mini earthquake. And the whole team just started like effing and blinding and sprinted across to the safest place. And I thought I was going to die in that moment. <laughs> like, my God, like, this is real. But yeah, I don't want to go back. <laughs> I just missed that whole sound bite. That's okay. Um, <clears throat> yeah, the internet cut out. Um, <laughs> so when you were first climbing up Mount Everest, when you were headed towards the top, what was the hardest thing that you encountered? Um, the hardest part of Everest, ooh, I'd say probably, probably the ice fall, um, especially on the first rotation is when it tires you out the most because it's your first time going to a new altitude um, for me, it was for the when I did Everest, it was the highest altitude I'd been so far because um, I'd done Aconcagua and then past the ice fall and onto you know Camp Two, Camp Three. You're you're pushing onto new new altitudes, so that was really difficult because your body's not used to it. And the ice fall itself was challenging. There's like vertical sections where you're carrying you know heavy backpacks and pulling your your own weight. Um, so that was the most difficult. But overall, the most difficult part of Everest was sitting at base camp for two months. That was painful. <laughs> I can only imagine. <laughs> yeah. 
So did you have any uh, missteps or any scary situations going up or coming down? No, um, not that I can remember. Um, I do remember actually very close to the summit, I was with my climbing partner, Gelje, who I always climb with. Um, and it was my first 8,000 er so I wasn't, I wasn't up to par with my sort of technical skill, let's say. Um, and there was one section near the Hillary step where um, I took both of my safeties off the rope at the same time, instead of keeping one on and then attaching on the other side of the anchor with the other rope uh, with my other safety. So you always have to have one safety on the rope at all times, um, which is why you have two. Um, and I just completely forgot to do that. And he turned around at me and I've never seen him so angry in my life, <laughs> even though we've been climbing together for two years. Um, he was not happy. Um, and I mean, if there was a gust of wind, if I did like if I um, misplaced my foot, then I'd be gone. Um, so, yeah, that was a wake up call. <laughs> and was it harder going up or coming down? Uh, definitely going down it's always on all of the 8000 as I've done coming down is my it's the worst part because you've done essentially what in your mind you think is the hardest part going up and then you have no motivation left I mean there's a tiny bit of motivation obviously because you don't want to die and stay up there forever um, and it'd be nice to go back to base camp and have a you know a nice um a nice bed or something um well there's no beds at base camp but you know what I mean um but yeah, there's just no motivation left. And, you know, you stumble more, there's scarier parts. And sometimes coming down is when you're in the most dangerous sort of weather situations or, you know, it's getting hot in the season. And in, on Nangapaba in Pakistan, for example, when we were coming down, the whole ice face was a river and the ice crews were coming out and this was scary. Um, but yeah, always coming down is hardest. And what, what were you feeling when you reached the top of Mount Everest? Because this was your first big mountain. Yeah, um, I think it's indescribable. I always tell people you have to do it in order to know how it feels. But what I can say is that it felt as though all the work that I'd put into this, all the effort, all the 6 a.m. mornings training my butt off when I really didn't want to finally paid off. And I just felt quite literally on top of the world um like it was such an amazing feeling of pride self-pride um and I knew this was a moment that I could cherish with me forever and I could go into any situation in life now and think you know okay probably no one in this room has climbed Everest except for me and I can keep that for myself and it gives me confidence it gives me motivation and now I can say instead of just Everest I've done you know 10 8000ers by the time I'm 22 and that's what, you know, keeps me going and feels, gives me pride, you know, it's a nice feeling to have that. So when you set out for Mount Everest, did you already have in mind that you were going to do all of the 14ers or yeah? Yeah, I did. Yeah, definitely. Because I mean, before Everest, I was on K2 winter expedition um, with Nims Dyer and his team. And that's when he actually told me that I need to do the 14-8000ers. He said, you're made for this you should you know do it over a few years like five to ten years which is the norm and I was like no <laughs> I'm not the norm <laughs> I'll do it in two 
Um, and so like, as soon as he said that, as soon as he planted that seed in my head, that was it, game on. Um, so after Everest, before Everest, I was already trying to get sponsors uh, for the mountains after Everest. Um, I landed with North Face as a North Face athlete. Um, and that was also like a big dream of mine. Um, so I was super excited and just, as soon as I got to the summit of Everest, I just wanted to come down so I could go to the next base camp. So um, you actually hold the record for the youngest female to summit K2. Tell yep. us about that expedition. Um, K2 was K2 was very short and quick, actually. Um, so when we went to Pakistan this year, this summer, we did Nangaparbat first, and that was the mountain that we had to do our acclimatization rotations on because it was the first one in quite a long time. Um, so that felt like the biggest expedition of that month. Um, but then obviously after Nangaparbat, we went to straight to K2. Um, oh no, I'm doing, I'm, I'm saying the wrong, we went to Broad Peak first actually. Um, so we did Broad <laughs> Peak. Uh, which was also quite difficult, actually, more difficult than expected, because um, they classified Broad Peak as one of the easier 8,000ers, but I, I didn't think it was that way. Um, I think it was because it was a very hot summer in Pakistan, so the snow was just melting the whole way up, and it was it was very hard to, you know, get your crampons in and ice screws were coming out. So we did that, and then by the time I'd done two 8,000ers, I was already pretty tired. Um, but then the plan was to do K2 without oxygen because um, I was already acclimatized. I, felt, I still felt strong. I was just mentally a bit weak at the point. Um, so we went up to camp four, happy days, 8,000 meters plus without oxygen, um, overtaking people with oxygen at that point. Um, and so we were ready to go with our plan and we slept at camp four, ready for a summit push at 8 p.m. So we told everyone, okay, people who are at camp four, we are leaving at 8 p.m. <laughs> so we said this before we went to sleep. Obviously, we woke up 8 p.m. and there was not one light on in the tents. Uh, okay, great. So there's about 30 people in total here. And then we slept for another hour, 9 p.m. We're like, okay, this is reaching the limit now. We can't go without oxygen this late. Um, and just no one wanted to wake up and no one wanted to trailblaze because there was no path because um, the mountain hadn't been climbed for a week or so. So in the end, me and Geljay, we had to trailblaze the whole way to the summit um, without much help at all. Um, and of course we had to use oxygen because you can't trailblaze without, it would take too many hours. And we had a short window because the weather was coming in. Um, so that was really irritating, but hey ho, if we didn't put oxygen, we wouldn't have summited. Um, so, I, I mean, my next goal would be to try and do an 8,000er without, because now I know that I'm capable. Yeah, that that's crazy, because K2 is considered, like, even though Everest is taller, K2 is considered the Mountaineer's mountain, like, the one, the big boy. So, it sounds <laughs> like you did it fair, fairly easily when it is, considered essentially the most deadly and lethal mountain yeah I mean obviously it wasn't easy <laughs> um, of course um I mean on the way down it was petrifying girls 
rocks coming down like at 100 miles per hour from every single direction um it was very dangerous actually that year because there were so many people as well and as I said it was so hot in Pakistan in the summer um but the hardest for me so far was Nanga Parbat because just vertical the whole way and your calves are on fire and at 6,000, oh, I can't quite remember, 6,400 or something, there's the Kingshofa wall, which is a 200 meter rock face, which may as well be a concrete wall. There's nothing to cold, <laughs> it's just straight. You're wearing 8,000 meter boots trying to navigate this wall and you've got a 20 kg backpack on. It's just, it was, I posted a video recently on my Instagram actually, and I was, it was the first time I'd cried, I'd properly cried. 8,000. It was such an open. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so, which of the 14ers have you already climbed? So, I've done, well, I've done Nangapabat K2 Broad Peak in Pakistan. And then I've done uh, Manaslu, Makalu, Dalagiri, Annapurna, um, Everest, uh, Lotse. Uh, I think that's it. Uh, ten of them. <laughs> I, I, I can't remember. <laughs> okay, so which ones do you have left then? Yeah, that's easier. G one, G two, and Shisha Pangma and Choyu. And two of them are politically difficult, uh, and the other two in Pakistan are relatively. Well, G one is easier than most of the eight thousanders, and G two also is. I mean, it's a bit more technical, but touch wood, they're smooth. <laughs> and you said Choi Oyu is the one that's politically might be hard to get, correct? Yeah, Choi Oyu is Pangma. So we tried to avoid this obstacle by going to the winter from Nepal side. Um, so Nepal side Choi Oyu is very technical climb and not suitable for commercial clients. Um, but we wanted to try and open a commercial route anyway because it's so difficult to get into China. Um, but they seem to be opening up now, which is good. Um, but that expedition didn't go quite to plan. Um, the winds were insane. It was 80 kilometers plus every single day and mostly like 200 kilometers on the, on the summit. Um, so it was impossible to climb. But we did reach Camp 3. Um, we reached about 1,200 meters, which is still pretty amazing. Um, but yeah, it was a tough expedition and very cold. <laughs> so, well, and are you planning for those this year, hopefully? Yeah, hopefully we can get into China in spring and then Pakistan in summer and then my project will be finished and I can focus on other ventures such as new places. <laughs> so after you get this all done, what else are you planning on on doing? Um, so I think I'm going to park the uh, sort of the intense mountaineering uh, for a while um, and focus on a, a new business, a trekking business um, that I'm starting with my climbing partner, Gelje, actually. Um, so it's called AGA Adventures. Um, and the name stands for Adriana, Gelje and Ashok. And Ashok is our late friend who passed away recently who was supposed to be our manager so we wanted to do a little tribute to him as well and we're just going to do um simply just trekking in nepal um, 
trying to show people the beauty the Nepal uh, and to also try something which you know may fill a hole or fulfill or you may feel you know amazing doing you know we both have pretty big personal brands within the mountaineering world and hopefully we have people that want to listen to our stories and also we can listen to theirs and form a bit of a community um so that's the plan for that and then also I'd love to do a bit more paragliding in my spare time um I'm not sure if it's safer than mountaineering but it's less intense for sure <laughs> so you basically uh jump off of mountains and climb them as well yeah that's the plan <laughs> what what is the I guess what is the biggest difference in your paragliding compared to your mountaineering? So, I mean, both of them contain risk, um, but they're both controlled risk in a way. Um, I'm not doing, you know, absolutely insane things. Like for example, mountaineering, I'm always using a harness and, and safety and you're never clipped out of a rope um, unless you're doing alpine style um, and in, in uh, paragliding you have a safety chute you do safe takeoff safe landing you don't go in treacherous weather so it's all controlled risk um, which is what I like to do because that's the way you can progress as a person is by taking risks in life um, but paragliding is a lot more calm you kind of the most exercise you do is running off the side of the cliff to be able to fly um, and it's a bit of mindfulness, you know, you're, you're gliding through the air and it's peaceful and it's just, it's a different side of, of sport that, you know, sometimes I like to explore and you get to see beautiful places from, you know, up in the sky. Uh, whereas mountaineering, it's, you know, it's an intense sport. Um, and essentially you are suffering at some point. So it's not quite the same. You're never suffering when you're paragliding. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> And what do, what does your family think about all of your adventures? <laughs> um, I mean, my dad's probably jealous because um, he's always been into mountaineering. And I mean, we tried to climb together as much as possible um, because that's where it all started. I started climbing with my father. I did some of the seven summits with him, Aconcagua, Elbrus, Kili, um, and hopefully Everest this year or next year with him. Um, so he's fully supportive and he loves what I do. And he's always, I mean, my parents are my biggest fans, like in real life and on Instagram. <laughs> um, so they've always been there. And obviously my mom, she was a bit hesitant at the beginning as all moms would be because, you know, this is a life and death sport. Um, but I think as the mountains have gone on, she's grown to understand that like I can actually make a career out of this. And, you know, what I've done has been very successful because um, I think she's, you know, being typical mom, it's, oh, you've quit university. What are you going to do with your life? You can't just climb forever. Um, but hopefully I proved that, you know, I can make something from this. Um, so, yeah, they're happy with it. And I think my mom is also waiting for the day that I stop doing 8,000ers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah my 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 daughter was like can I start climbing mountains and I was like mm, I don't know about that I don't think my heart could take it if you had any advice or words of wisdom for any little girls who are listening to this what would you say um I would say 
to explore as much as possible um, because the world is huge and there's so many different opportunities and avenues and, and things to try out in life. And by trying things and being outside of your comfort zone is when you progress and you learn about yourself uh, and you really get to enjoy life. So that's what I say. I'd say things that are out of your comfort zone are the best things to do. So if you're scared to, for example, try out ballet, then do it because that's when you're going to progress and you're going to, you know, and you're going to build as a human. Um, because I think so many of us are just so scared to take leaps and, and go into, you know, frightening things, but we need to do that more often. And um, yeah, just, that's my thing. Just try everything. I think that's excellent advice for anybody. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to backtrack to you were talking about your expedition company. When are you guys going live? Um, so we'll be going live hopefully in February. Um, so it's just the technical parts. Now we're working on building a website, um, trying to finalize things in Nepal. Um, so yeah, end of February, we'll start taking in clients and hopefully our first check will be in October this year, um, which is super soon, but I'm just I'm so raring to go and get this started. And I can't wait to, you know, just meet the clients and, and hopefully make a few people happy. <laughs> and um, how long are your treks going to be? So um, we'll do a variation of different treks. So we'll have Everest Base Camp, Manaslu Base Camp, three passes, um, maybe Annapurna as well. So Everest Base Camp will be approximately 15 days in total, um, including a couple of days in Kathmandu as well, some welcome dinners, farewell dinners. Um, so yeah, it depends. And it's all tailored to people as well if they want to you know, go a bit slower if they want to sleep at more villages, then we're totally able to, to do that um, and to, to supply that. So yeah, it's flexible, really. Sounds like you have something big and wonderful coming up. <laughs> Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> Adriana, thank you so much for joining us today. And we will be following the rest of your adventures this year. Oh, thanks so much for having me. All right. And we'll hopefully talk to you again. Yes, thank you. And that's it for today's episode. I want to thank Adriana again for coming onto the podcast and letting me interview her. I'm always inspired by people's Everest stories because it's such a unique group of people with such diverse backgrounds and the way they get to Mount Everest, regardless if they're a mountaineer or not is a very interesting story. Everyone has a different reason why they climb out Everest. They have different feelings when they reach the summit or if they reach the summit. And the stories are just amazing. And see, I'm speechless. I'm not one of those people who get speechless. But their stories just keep me in awe because it's not something I'll be able to accomplish, but it's something that inspires me and touches me like deep down inside my little heart. Thank you everyone for listening and we'll talk to you next week.
Thank you for listening to the All About Everest podcast. Please rate, subscribe, follow, and share. You can follow us on social media at All About Everest. And if you love what we do, you can even buy us a coffee. If you're interested in interviewing for us, please let us know or even sharing your Everest story. Cheers.